Hey, here we go. Okay, stop having fun, you're at church. All right, here we go, here we go. Um, Josh is here. Uh, we got official, I got an email from the district president this morning that we're officially on for 4 p.m. two weeks from today for the Holy Supper and ordination and installation, the whole shop. So, um, you know, do be coming along for that. Uh, so it's great to see you back. Thanks very much. And now the custom is he sort of disappears like the Lord into the wilderness. And you won't see him again, I don't think, until, until that day. Until that day. So that's kind of the normal thing. So uh, that's good. And um, it's very good to have Arthur back. He's uh, been very gracious about helping me these past few months, and we're, we're glad for that. Um, you remember now where we've been in Bible study, this talk about community and uh, words of mercy and acts of mercy and gratitude and hospitality for strangers. And then the ultimate hospitality is for uh, how the Lord is present to us. And you remember now and when we left off last week, said um, for, for such a glorious presence we need a guide. And the next uh, thing then was Emmaus. It just so happens that uh, years ago Arthur wrote a PhD uh, at Durham on Emmaus. Uh, which has been published, and you know you can still still buy. It's been in print. How many years has it been in print? Since '93. That's a remarkable thing for any guy's dissertation to be in print 13 years. First, to get your dissertation published is an amazing thing, but for it to stay in print 13 years, for any book to be in print 13 years, is a remarkable thing. So we're glad to have you back. Uh, Emmaus is the place. Okay. Thank you, you pray and then take us. We got to about that. Okay, Thank I got you. it. <coughs> the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we are always on pilgrimage to your holy city, the New Jerusalem. And along the way, you feed us with holy food. You give us a glimpse of that city among us now. We ask that you be with us as we travel to Emmaus. Burn our hearts and open our eyes. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless me the Lord. Well, I have, I have done Emmaus in an hour, but I've never done it in a half hour. So I'm going to talk really fast. Okay, everybody, are you ready to go? Strap in, because we're going to go. Um, <clears throat> there is a theory that I wholeheartedly embrace that in the year 58, when Paul was in uh, prison in Caesarea Maritima, you know where that is, on the, on the, the coast of, of Israel there, um, that Mark and Luke were with him. They were visiting him in prison. He was under house arrest, but he had a pretty open and free kind of, of life there. And it was there that Paul, with Mark and Luke, Matthew having been written, carved up the rest of the stories of Jesus and who gets what, where, how. And for whatever reason, and I think I know, Luke got Emmaus. And it is the climax of his gospel. There is no greater story for me in all the gospels than Emmaus. And to have the privilege of having written a thesis on that is remarkable. And usually you, you write a thesis on something nobody's written about. And who, I mean, you think everybody would have written on Emmaus, but surprisingly there was only one German and one French thesis on Emmaus, and that was it. So there was an open field there, so it was great to be able to do that. Um, one of the things that I'd like to talk about today is hospitality and how Emmaus is the climax of the hospitality 
in Luke. And if you read Luke, and, and this is very, very true of Luke, and I think you see it as you, as you read it, <laughs> it seems as if Jesus is always going from a meal or you know, you know, to a meal. It always seems as if he's eating along the way. And I'm very interested in studying a gospel like Luke on how he structures it. Very interested. The, the, the mini structure, how each passage is structured, but the larger macro structure. And one of the things you'll find about somebody like Luke, and this is true of the other evangelists, but Luke does it in his own way, is he's very careful about how he calibrates time. And he tells us very clearly about that three days, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter, and how they are to be marked. And you may not know this, but the Passover always occurs after sundown. So the Passover, in other words, the institution of the Lord's Supper, happens after sundown, which happens to be their Friday. So Good Friday begins with a meal, the last meal of the old era of salvation and the institution of the new meal. And I think I spoke last time a little bit about how this was Jesus' Passover. So that's how these three days begin. And then as it gets towards the end of the day, on the third day, after Jesus takes his Sabbath rest in the tomb, rises from the dead, at the end of that third day, Luke ends that three-day sequence with a meal the celebration now of the first meal of the new era of salvation after the resurrection. So he begins with a meal and he ends with a meal. Now that is just really extraordinarily remarkable. Now the Emmaus story, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about who they are. The Emmaus disciples are very important. They're very important. And here you can see, uh, oh, I mean, Luke is, is, is acting a little bit here uh, in a way that I think you might say would almost be political. Because remember, Luke is writing Paul's gospel, and Paul is not well thought of by a lot of Jewish Christians. If you remember back in the, into uh, Acts 15, you know, and, and the whole issue of circumcision in the Jewish church in Jerusalem and the Gentile church in Antioch, <clears throat> and now Paul's gospel that Luke is writing in a sense on behalf of Paul is coming out Luke is not one of the 12. Luke is probably a Greek. He's probably from the nation of, of, of Greece. So he's not known to the Jerusalem people. And I think this is one of the reasons he gets Emmaus. Because we know the two Emmaus disciples are probably relatives of Jesus. Cleopas is the only one that's named. And we know that there is a Cleopas who happens to be Jesus' uncle. This is Joseph's brother. Very important. And, and this, this is pretty well affirmed by the early tradition, the early, the early church fathers, that Cleopas is Jesus' uncle. Now that makes the fact that he doesn't recognize them, Jesus, even more remarkable. This is family, and remember, family among the Jews, everybody knows everybody. The, the disciple that's of interest, though, is the unnamed one. And I'll tell you, there have been as many theories as there are days of the year on who this is, Luke being one of them. You know, I mean, you can just go right down to jo uh, Cleopas' wife. But again, tradition is pretty clear here. And tradition from the beginning said, and this makes sense, at least it does to me, that it's Cleopas' son, whose name is Simeon. Now, Simeon, you may not know, but it is very important that he is the second bishop of Jerusalem. Now, James, the first bishop, is martyred in 62. 62, and Luke's probably writing his gospel, 59, 60, 58, 59, 60. J 
James is martyred in 62. By the time that gospel gets to Jerusalem, who's the bishop? One of the Emmaus disciples. Okay, the bishop receives this gospel from Paul, from Luke, in a Jewish church, and he's reading it, and of course he's probably got a little bit of vanity, you know, and he reads, gets to the end, and there he is, his story. And he goes, hey, this isn't a bad gospel, you know? <laughs> Not too bad. I think we ought to accept this in the church. There was absolutely no dispute at all about Luke's gospel because the Emmaus disciples were deeply embedded in the Jerusalem tradition. Now, we do believe that there were obviously oral and written traditions that were gathered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I mean, we believe that. That has to happen. And there was a Jerusalem tradition. And the Jerusalem tradition happened to be the personal family stories related to Jesus. All the, the infancy narratives are in Jerusalem. They were collected by the Jerusalem church. Mary was the one who probably gave birth to those in many ways, or at least she was, she was consulted as they were written. One of, the, one of the Jerusalem traditions was the Emmaus story, precisely because it's Jesus' relative. Now, it's, it's important to recognize a couple of things about Emmaus. One is that it is on the first day of the week or the third day of the three-day sequence. And Luke carefully calibrates this. Five times he tells us that, which indicates that's important. Secondly, is that there is, is, is a very important recognition that the Emmaus story does not take place in Jerusalem. Now, I, I preach on Jerusalem this morning. Jerusalem is everything in Luke's gospel. You've got to get to Jerusalem. But the minute everything happens in Jerusalem, it no longer is important in the same way as it was. So the first revelation of Jesus to his disciples in Luke's gospel is not in Jerusalem. It's outside Jerusalem in Emmaus, which is about, perhaps, about an hour's walk. So... What, what you see as you read Emmaus is that it's taking about an hour to get there. Now, I think the whole point of Emmaus is very simply this, is to indicate how it is that we now have communion with Jesus. In other words, it's how we have hospitality with him. And that's something that Luke has been teaching us all the way up to this point. And as you read Luke, what you see is Jesus accepting hospitality, Jesus being rejected by people who don't show him hospitality. You see this, this kind of back and forth throughout the gospel of people who receive him or don't and who he chooses to eat with and why, or he chooses to teach or why. And when you finally get to Emmaus, it all comes to a head. Now, it is such a rich, rich text. I mean, you can't do justice in a half hour. So I want, I want to break it down into two very simple parts with you, and that is what we're going to call the teaching on the road, and it's on the road, very important, it's on pilgrimage, it's on pilgrimage, and then the breaking of the bread when they finally do get to Emmaus. So there is a locatedness to the breaking of the bread. And I think that all of, really in many ways, kind of the, the liturgical tradition of which we come from is influenced by the Emmaus story. And one of, the, one of the theses I had in, my, in my, my doctoral work was to suggest to you that the two structures of Christian worship that come right out of the New Testament from Jesus himself, word, teaching on the road, and the breaking of the bread, the sacrament, 
are founded by Jesus throughout his gospel, but come to a climax at Emmaus. And that all we have been doing since then is what Jesus did on the road and what Jesus did at Emmaus. So in a sense, we are simply repeating what has been happening ever since then. And you can see in the early church, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, the fellowship that is the breaking of bread and prayers is exactly what we're doing today. So Emmaus provides the foundation for Christian worship. Now I will tell you that I wasn't as nervous about what the New Testament scholars were gonna say about my thesis as I was the liturgical ones. Were they gonna buy this? That this is in fact the foundation of the structures of the liturgy that we have today. And I, I did receive very positive response from that. And it was, it was actually published by a liturgical press. So they affirmed it by the very press that I published for. So I, I think there is some truth to this. And, and when we get to the end here, we're gonna look at verse 35, where I think you see the structures of Christian worship are established there. And really what we're talking about is communion with Christ. Communion with Christ in word and meal. That's how he communes with us. And if you remember when I was here a month ago, when we were talking about table fellowship, we were talking about table fellowship in the ancient world, both among Greeks and Jews, was always proceeding, you know, with teaching, creating the, 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 the community and binding them together around a word, a teaching. And then the kind of the consummation of that intimacy that is created in the word by the, the even greater intimacy of eating and drinking together at the table. Now, when you, when you look at the Emmaus story, it is, it's, it's a wonderful drama in the sense that, that, that you, there's, there's this kind of preparation before you actually get to the teaching on the road. And the drama is this, that, that these two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem absolutely devastated, and I think this is what you did last week with the mourning in the book by, by Nguyen. I mean, the mourning that they're having over the loss of their, of their friend, who they thought was the Messiah, and their complete devastation. I mean, there's, there's a word there in the Greek that says they, it's, they, they stood there skuthropoi. I mean, you can almost hear it. Devastated in sorrow over what had happened. And, um, and it's at that point that all of a sudden, kind of Jesus comes up alongside of them. He kind of just appears alongside of them and begins to walk with them. And it's really, I mean, again, if we had time, if you look at the, the original text, the careful crafting of the language is such that it, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's actually this, this large, you know, structure, circular structure, you know, with this kind of target in the middle that the evangelist puts together so that you can see the, the magnificence of the narrative itself and focuses you in on that moment, that great moment, where in the breaking of the bread, the eyes are opened. Now, it says there, as Jesus walks alongside him, they, they get into this conversation, you know? And, you know, what are you talking about? You know, and we're talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem. And they, they're sad because they say to him, and if you remember a month ago, I referred to this, are you the only stranger, the only alien, who doesn't know about the things that have happened in Jerusalem? You know, I mean, who, where have you been? You know, I mean, it's like, who didn't, by the afternoon, know about 9-11? I mean, you had, to be, you had to be living under a rock not to know that. And that's the same thing about Jerusalem and what happened to Jesus. Everybody knew that. And, um, and so Jesus then, you know, asked them what things. 
And it says there in that context, and you have to see again that this is very clearly stated and it's very particular in the Greek language, their eyes were closed by God, by God. It's not that they just didn't recognize him or he didn't look the same. God kept them from seeing who Jesus was. God actually intervenes and shuts them down so that they can't see who he is. And then they engage in this conversation. It starts in verse 19, if you're with me there. Verse 19. And the, the Emmaus disciples make the most extraordinary confession of faith, except they don't have a clue what they're doing. This is the wonderful thing about it. It's absolutely orthodox in every way. I mean, it is as, as beautiful and clear a confession. And if you look at it in light of the whole gospel, it is a summation of everything that Luke has been teaching up to this point. Now look, this, back up a little bit into, um, into verse you know, 18, where one of them by the name of Cleopas said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the happening things in her, in Jerusalem, in these days? And then Jesus says, what things? What are you talking about? And they say to him, and this is now the Emmaus disciples' confession, and I think it's a lament. It's a lament. They say the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Now that's a confession right there, that he's just from Nazareth. And then they go on, who is, and most of your translations don't have this, but a man, a man, just a man. Remember Jesus Christ Superstar? He's just a man. Remember that? He's a man, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Now that, that, that is absolutely true. He was mighty in his deeds, his miracles, and the people attest to it, even God attests to it. And then verse 20, here is where you just can see, and you can see they're just like everyone else, just like, like us. Indeed, our, and, and this is very important, our, they claim them, our rulers and chief priests, our chief priests and rulers, delivered him over, there's the word for betrayal, it's a technical word for passion, delivered him over into the judgment of death and crucified him. Now, if you look at the gospel, that's a full Christology. That's what a prophet does. Prophet comes, teaches, prophet performs miracles, and a prophet is rejected for doing that very thing. I mean, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. That is, that is what they did. They come, they testify for God. That's what a prophet does, affirms it with miracles. And for doing that, they get killed. Jesus is fulfilling the prophet Christology here. Now, 21, this is unbelievable. 21, and we had hoped that he was the one about to redeem Israel. This is what they're saying. We hoped that he was about to redeem Israel. They, weren't, they actually use the word for ransom, for atonement. Now, can you see how absolutely brain-dead they are? How do you think he redeems Israel? By crucifixion. They don't get it. They do not get it. They're confessing it, but they don't understand it. Of course he redeems Israel through death. They know the prophets. They should have known this. And then they go on to confess the resurrection. But indeed, already in these things, it's the third day since they've all happened. The third day. They know what happens on the third day. He told them at least three times that he would rise on the third day. And then they give the evidence. But even some women out of us amazed us, coming early from the tomb, 
Okay, here's the report of the women. And not finding his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels. I mean, they're just digging a deeper and deeper hole. Who were saying that he was living. So they get the testimony of the angels, the women. And some of them, some of those who are with us, went to the tomb and they found just as also the women said, but him they did not see. So it's all there. Full Christology, crucifixion, language of atonement, resurrection, testimony to the resurrection. It is a magnificent confession, but they don't understand because their eyes are shut. So what does Jesus do? He actually uses a word that my father would not let us use at home. Um, foolish is probably how it's translated to you. The word is, it literally is stupid. My father would not let anybody be called stupid. And that's what he calls them. This is what Paul calls the Galatians. You know, I'll use the word foolish. Oh, foolish and slow of heart. And look at what he chastises them about. This is Jesus now. And Jesus is taking over his teacher. Slow of heart to believe all the things that were written by the prophets. The prophets spoke. And then he now interprets what they just said. Was it not necessary that the Christ, this is the first time in Luke's gospel that Jesus calls himself the Christ. Very interesting. The Christ suffer and enter into his glory. There's crucifixion, resurrection. Although he uses now technical language, into his glory. And then this is just amazing. This must have been the most extraordinary moment, really, I mean, you, you talk about revelation and beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, Moses and all the prophets, which means the entire Old Testament, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself, and that was concerning his death and resurrection. So he shows them how if they had just been listening to the prophets that they heard every Saturday in synagogue, they would have known that what happened to Jesus is exactly, and they knew that. They knew that. Now, the interesting thing here is, yeah, go ahead. He did that in an hour. Well, the other thing, he's like, you know, the, the disciples are like you. They know the whole Old Testament, so he can just, you know the joke, you know, where they've been in prison all that time, and they've been telling the same jokes over and over again? You've heard that. And they don't tell it anymore. They just let, say the number and everybody laughs, you know? <laughs> Okay, I mean, that's, that's essentially what's happening here. They know the prophets. All he did was say, it's me. Here, 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 here. And he gives it the whole thing. Psalm 22, Psalm 39, Psalm 61. Boom, 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 boom. He goes through it. It's all, it's all about me. Now look what happens as a result of this. And this is important. This is happening on the road. It's pilgrimage. And that's why our church is built the way it is. All of them are built this way. Because you come in with baptism, and it should be at the front, you come through baptism, and you make pilgrimage to the altar. And as you come to the altar, you hear the word. The word brings you here. The word cultivates you here, and you make pilgrimage down this aisle to the holy place here, where you come into the presence. You, you come up into the presence. In our chapel, which Josh has been the sacristan, so he's been in charge of this, when we have a feast day, we sense the altar mostly so that when people come up to the altar, they can smell the presence when they come here. That's why it's built this way. It's built on the Emmaus model, that you make pilgrimage by means of the word, 
to get to the table. Now, what happens to them from what Jesus does? They don't recognize him. What do they say? Verse 32, you've got to drop down to 32. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us as he spoke to us on the road, as he opened to us the scriptures? Now, their hearts were burning, which meant they recognized that there was an extraordinary moment here, but they still did not see that this man was Jesus the Messiah. And that's what the word did. It cultivated them, it prepared them, but it didn't open their eyes. Now, what I'm going to suggest is you can't have one without the other. You have to have the word that creates burning hearts, but you have to have the table where there's open eyes. And the minute you, you have one you know, out of sync, I mean, if you just had the table without the word, it's not right. If you just have the word without the table, it's not right. If you have the table before the word, it's not right. The way of table fellowship is to create burning hearts through the word to make your pilgrimage. You have to, you have to go through the, kind of the, the, the process of suffering through his word to come into the presence of his, of his, of his food. Verse 28, the, the Emmaus moment is really very short. They drew near into the village where they were going. If you saw that word draw near, it means to enter into holy space into God's salvation. It's a technical word. And I love this. Jesus pretends to be going farther. You know, I mean, it's like, and you know why? They have to invite him. They have to, they have to, and here's your whole theme. They have to show hospitality. They need to say, come stay with us. And that's exactly what they did. And I love this part. You know, they prevailed upon him, which means literally they got down on their knees, threw their arms around his legs and said, don't go, stay here. And, and here's, here's, the, here's the language, abide with us, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. That's the hymn right there. And the word is remain with us, abide with us, be present with us. That's the language of present. They want Jesus to be there. They want communion with his flesh is now resurrected flesh. And, and they say it is, the day is declining. And it says, he went in in order to be present with them. That same word is repeated twice. Again, that's important because it's, it's repeated twice. Now I think, and this was one of my, my, my major points, I think right now in verse 30 and 31, you have the climax of Luke's gospel. Everything has gone to this point. And so in verse 30, and just listen to this language. And it came to pass that while he was reclining with them, taking the bread, he blessed it, and breaking it, he gave it to them, and you finish the, the sentence. Okay? I mean, it's just the exact same language that is used at the Lord's Supper, and if you go back, it's the exact same language that's used at the feeding of the 5,000. The only three meals where Jesus is host 5,000 at the end of the Galilean ministry, Last Supper, Jesus, Jesus Passover at the end of his, his journey to Jerusalem, and now after the resurrection where he's the host at Emmaus. And then verse 31, this is the climax, this is the, the whole point. And it's a beautiful little structure, their eyes were now opened by God. God opens the eyes. He closed them, now he opens them. And it, and it says here, and... and um, and they recognized him, and he 
then became invisible to them. He just disappeared. Now this is the first time in Luke's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, that any human being has recognized by faith that Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. And it happens in the breaking of the bread. The bread opens the eyes. The word causes burning hearts and prepares for the opening of the eyes and the breaking of the bread. So you've got to have both. The eyes are open in the breaking of bread. Now, if you look at the theme of eyes in Luke's Gospel, one of the first statements that you hear is, Simeon, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. You know, the first miracle that, that, that I mean, the first prediction of miracle that Jesus does is that he's going to open eyes, the eyes of the blind. The last miracle that Jesus does before he gets to Jerusalem is that he opens the eyes of blind Bartimaeus, you know. It's not called Bartimaeus in Luke, that's only in Mark, but we know it's the same guy, it's in Bethany right outside the city. Eyes opened are both physical and spiritual eyes to see Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And then the disappearing. I think the reason he disappears is because he is saying to them that he's no longer going to appear to them in this way. It's now going to be word and sacrament. That is how he's going to be present. And if you read 1 Peter, 1 Peter will tell you that it's better that way than even if he were here. It is better to have the presence of the Lord in word and sacrament than to have him walk with you and talk with you, you know that, and tell him I am his own, you know that hymn? That's not as good as consuming him and being part of him. That actually having the crucified and risen Lord in your body is better than having him sit right here with us standing up and teaching Bible class. That's what 1 Peter says. And that's why Jesus disappears from them, to show them that this is not the means by which he's going to be present anymore. Now, just for your information, it wasn't like he was standing there, sitting there at the table, breaking the bread, and then it falls on the table because he just poop, you know. In the course of the meal, all of a sudden they recognized that he was not there anymore. He had gone. And of course, in his glorified presence, his body is no longer subject to, to space and time as it was before. So you can pass through a wall, you can disappear. Again, a wonderful frame to this is if you remember in the very first scene in Luke in this Galilean ministry, when he's in his hometown of Nazareth, you have a very similar situation where he teaches them and they want to kill him. They bring him to the precipice of the hill because they want him to perform miracles and he doesn't. He doesn't. He, in fact, he chastises them about not Again, listening to the prophets, Mo, uh, Elijah and Elisha. So they're just about to throw him over the hill, and all of a sudden, he disappears. Okay? Same thing. So he disappears at the beginning when they're about to kill him, and now he disappears when it's all over, and he has revealed himself now in word and sacrament. Now look at verse 35 there, 2435. <clears throat> in fact, let's go into it. I lost my place here. I closed the book. Here, 2435. Um, verse 33, start there. Rising up in that hour, they returned into Jerusalem. They found gathered together the eleven and those with him, saying, and this is, this is ironic, and it's important, but it's ironic. The, 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 the eleven are sitting there in the upper room probably, and the Emmaus disciples come back from this moment, and the eleven say to them, the Lord has risen, and has appeared to Simon. We know that from the other Gospels. That's what he did. And I mean, the Emmaus disciples go, 
wait until you hear what we've got to tell you. <laughs> wait till you hear. And that's exactly what they do, verse 35. And they did, and here's the word, some of you know it, exegesis. That's what we do in, in biblical interpretation. They interpreted, okay? They led out, that's what that means. Exegesis means to lead out. They interpreted the things on the road. Now that's the teaching on the road. That's what he did on the road. And that includes their lament. All of that is part of that teaching. And then how he opened their minds to understand the scriptures there. That's what he does. That, that, that's what they interpret, those things on the road. Now that's the word, that's the teaching. And as he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. There's the sacrament. There you get the two structures, word and sacrament. And that's what we've been doing ever since. We've been doing that ever since. We've been, we've been on the Emmaus Road with Jesus. And that's, and that's what happens. He comes to us. He, he, we hear his voice. He prepares us here. And then we make pilgrimage to the table where in the breaking of the bread, our eyes are opened. We commune with him. It's the most extraordinary moment of hospitality that you would ever have. And we get the privilege of doing it at least once a week. I mean, it still is stunning to me. One of the most extraordinary things I do as a pastor, this is why I love it when he invites me to come, is giving you the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's the most intimate thing a pastor does with his people. And to say that to each one of you, the true body given for you, the true blood shed for you, joining you to the eternal Lord, joining you to the saints in heaven, here in this new Jerusalem where, where he is. Oh, there's, it doesn't get any better than that. And in two weeks, young Joshua <laughs> is going to be ordained so that he might now be given this privilege to do that as well. Okay, I think, Bobby, I'm time's up. Hey, look at that. <coughs> Bingo. Quick questions? That's Emmaus. It's not, it doesn't get any better than Emmaus. None. All right. Let's rise and, and uh, pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.